Did you know that all modern scent hounds are descendant of the bloodhound? Or that the chihuahua's ancestor, the Tashiji dog, dates back to the Aztecs? Or that a border collie named Chaser knows 1,000 words? You know, the pit bull used to be considered America's dog and was our country's symbol in World War I. Did you know that you could learn all of these facts and more about dogs if you listen to our podcast, We're Getting a Dog? Each week, we go over a different breed's history and what it takes to own it. And we talk a little bit about why we love the breed and try to present each dog in a fair light. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you stream podcasts. From the Arcadia Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Wesley Van Hoosen, and this is Good Food for Bad Friends. On this podcast, I'll have a different guest every week to talk about their history with food. Along with each episode, you can find recipes inspired by the featured guest on our website, goodfoodbadfriends.com. Welcome everyone to the very first special here on Good Food for Bad Friends. This week, instead of having a guest on, I'd like to take you through the different histories surrounding the dishes that regularly make our tables every year. I have always identified Thanksgiving as the kickoff to the holiday season. It's a dedicated celebration of family and culinary traditions that are passed down through generations. I was born into a family that already had pretty set-in-stone traditions when it came to Thanksgiving. As the youngest cook in my family, I was always relegated to the same tasks every year for the most part, cranberry sauce and pies. But that doesn't mean that I didn't make the most of it. Previous listeners of this show know my vendetta against canned cranberry sauce. I now make a recipe that I proudly can call the first recipe that I ever adapted to make my own. During those first few years cooking for Thanksgiving, I also was in charge of the desserts, so naturally, I'd make three different pies, apple, pumpkin, and sugar. Now that last one you may not have heard of, sugar pie is a beloved recipe in memory of my paternal grandmother, Mays. She always made this pie every year for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I'm fortunate enough to have her handwritten recipe. I'll talk about that pie along with many other things throughout this week's show. Part 1. The Main Event. Turkey. In dining rooms all across the United States, a similar yet dated idea of perfection may play out in our minds. We all, as a giant family, sit at a gloriously laid table, complete with the good china and the real silver. The matriarch of the family, along with several other family members, has put upon the table a veritable feast, not only for the eyes, but for the nose, too. You all sit in eager anticipation as she brings out the perfectly golden-skinned roasted turkey. The patriarch is ready and waiting with a carving knife and fork. You may have guessed this fantasy that I'm describing. Freedom from Want by Norman Rockwell lives in the memory of previous generations as the image of the quintessential Thanksgiving dinner. Perhaps in other more realistic images of Thanksgiving around the country, it's maybe only a couple of people having a romantic dinner, or just a small group of four, at a quaint kitchen table put in the living room because, well, there's just more room there. In whatever situation or setting you choose for the day, there's always one thing that must be on the table, the turkey. 
Because of Thanksgiving, Meleagris galopavo, or the turkey, has gone from a simple bird to the crown jewel of American food culture. But why? It's no secret that turkey was not present at the first Thanksgiving between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag Native Americans. The only thing close was something called waterfowl, which is exactly what the name implies, a fowl that sits on the water, like geese or ducks. So how did turkey become the annual meat of choice? In order to even begin to address that, I'm going to start with our first history lesson in this episode, Thanksgiving Day as a Holiday. Up until the 1860s, Thanksgiving Day was an occasionally celebrated holiday that a president usually would announce the date of ahead of its celebration. For example, George Washington usually held his Thanksgiving in February. It wasn't even always celebrated depending on whoever the commander-in-chief was at the time. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, and he didn't want to celebrate a holiday that commemorated or gave thanks to an omnipotent god. Abraham Lincoln was the first president to actually set the permanent annual day on the calendar so that the country would be able to celebrate it without question. He established his Thanksgiving Day as the last Thursday of November in 1863, in the middle of the raging Civil War. He dedicated it to the good crops and bounty that the Union experienced in that year, and every year since the holiday has always been celebrated nationally. Prior to Thanksgiving Day, there was another holiday known as Evacuation Day, and it commemorated the departing of the British troops from New York City after the Revolutionary War. Thanksgiving prevailed as the more popular holiday, in part because Evacuation Day was only celebrated in New York. So, with all that being said about the history of the holiday itself, I'll beg the question again. Why Turkey? As it turns out, turkey was chosen because of the simple fact that they feed more people than a chicken can. If the whole idea of the day was to have a feast, then why put a small, flightless bird on the table as the piece de resistance? Pork was also out of the question, as it was considered too common a meal to prepare for a new national holiday helping to rally the folks back home in the north during the ongoing civil war. Another thing that turkeys had going for them, or maybe didn't in this case, is that they don't lay eggs or produce milk. This made them a perfect choice for a meat option that wasn't a waste of resources and could also feed an entire family and then some. To add to the turkey's reputation, it's not very difficult to prepare. Now, I know what you might be imagining. Worst case scenarios, unexplainable amounts of smoke, billowing out of a hot oven, only to reveal a half-charred, yet somehow half-raw turkey. Or maybe it goes more like my personal favorite, the turkey carving scene from Christmas Vacation. Save the neck for me, Clark. <laughs> okay, Eddie. If you have not seen that movie, by the way, pause this podcast, order it, and then come right back and listen to the rest. Here's the heart. Ruining the turkey is our worst holiday nightmare, and it's a valid one. However, I've come to realize that while cooking a turkey is a lot of time, it's not a lot of intense effort. I don't wake up in the wee small hours of the morning to rev up the oven and get the bird in there to roast. Ina Garten once advised, turkeys are just like giant chickens, and they cook in much less time than we think. 
I use that as my mantra on Thanksgiving Day. I don't buy a giant 24-pound monstrosity that takes hours upon hours to cook through. Do as I do and take the easy way out. Cook one smaller turkey the day before, and then use a slightly larger turkey as the showcase for the actual day. I know it sounds ridiculous to buy two, but hear me out, there are benefits. The first is that you'll have double the dark meat. Now, if I know myself, I'll have two slices of the delicate turkey breast with a light but intentioned wisp of gravy and cranberry sauce. And then, on the other side of my plate, is a steaming hot pile of greasy, flavorful, dark turkey meat. My southern grandmother always used to claim this part of the turkey pretty much for herself, and I can see why. The meat has basically sat and cooked in whatever fat you've decided to use for upwards of three or four or maybe even more hours, and it's basted itself the entire time. The leftover dark meat is also perfect for using in soups and stews, if you ever have any leftover, that is. The second reason I make two turkeys if I'm in charge of food for the usual big Thanksgiving party is that you honestly never know how much people are going to eat on that day. I kind of starve myself starting the night before by not eating much of a dinner. That way I can actually get to eat everything on the table the next day. Of course, I taste test what I cook as I go, but I honestly see the meal as something that deserves the undivided attention of all of my senses. My friends can also eat a lot. Many of my close friends are 20 and 30-somethings who stay active and healthy, so they can throw down on days like Thanksgiving. I'm just simply making sure that there is enough food to go around for everyone. The final reason is that you actually have leftovers to graze on in the days following. I'll never forget one year my father had to cook a turkey breast on the Saturday after Thanksgiving because we didn't have any leftover turkey. I'm very sure after that we never bought a turkey less than 18 pounds for our homely Thanksgivings growing up. We all have our traditions when it comes to the leftover turkey. My mother would sometimes make us turkey salad sandwiches, but I always remember her making me a small plate of all the Thanksgiving fixins when I was a kid, which I still do. When I moved away to Chicago and had practically no money for the first Thanksgiving I cooked here, I started my own tradition of using the leftover turkey in soup. Soup stretches things far, and a basic turkey soup with carrots, celery, and noodles is luckily not much money to make happen. Usually I have a bum carrot lying around anyway, and I have no shame for making stock from a quality brand concentrate. Whatever your leftover traditions are, having that second turkey is my preferred safeguard. Some of you out there may serve ham. We'll talk at Easter. Part 2. The Sides Sides are like a star's backup singers. Without them, there is a lack of depth, flavor, and harmony at the table. Now we all know the OG sides. Mashed potatoes and gravy, sweet potatoes or yams, stuffing, cranberry sauce, green bean casserole, and various breads or rolls. What always interested me more, though, were the regional dishes that make the tables around our country. Things like corn pudding, popovers, and my grandmother's beloved sugar pie. There's also the emergence of other world cultural foods being encouraged and accepted onto our tables at this time of the year. For this episode, though, I want to specifically cover the dishes that have made themselves the icons of this holiday. 
First is mashed potatoes. The first side that can be covered pretty quickly is mashed potatoes. This preparation of the potato originated in England, and the first written evidence comes from the late 18th century in Hannah Glass's The Art of Cookery. There are many cookbooks called The Art of Cookery. I think it was sort of the catch-all title for new burgeoning culinary practices within English regions. The recipe is essentially the same, boiled potatoes with a mixture of milk and butter with salt. I add roasted garlic to mine for Thanksgiving, and I use gold potatoes because they have a better color and flavor. Granted, russets are the tried and true classic potato and are just as delicious, if not a little earthier. Next up on the list of sides is stuffing, or as some people call it, dressing. While many people would assume that this just came along when the turkey became popular, it's actually much more extensive than that. In the region formerly known as Larsa, or modern-day Iraq, clay tablets discovered there describe poultry recipes where a chicken is served with a soft bread. It's quite possible that this was the prototype of our modern stuffing. Romans took it to the next level, and I'm not talking just bread. These feasts had it all, like pigs stuffed with birds, or vermin stuffed with bread and vegetables, the Frankenstein foods of feasts. There's even evidence of the original turducken. It's also known that the Roman gourmet, or food enthusiast, who threw these lavish banquets where stuffing things into other things became a popular course, eventually committed suicide after bankrupting himself due to his lifestyle. His culinary legacy lives in a Roman cookbook with the eponymous title, Apicius. This tradition continued with the kings and queens of England. Many dishes of the British monarchy, most famously from the Tudor era, involved the stuffing of some kind of fowl into a pig, or a suckling pig stuffed with whole birds and vegetables, or pies. Pies upon pies upon pies involving different layers of savory stuffings. This British culinary tradition inevitably made its way over to the new colonies and future United States. As far as the first Thanksgiving with the pilgrims, it's not exactly known if bread stuffing was served, but it can be idealized that rice may have served this purpose during those first celebrated Thanksgivings. In the scope of recipes, the modern versions date back to the early 1800s, just as the nation started to recognize the holiday in larger numbers. I'm going to make an inference here and say that actually stuffing the bird with bread, fat, and herbs was just an extension of the previously established culinary traditions from Great Britain. Although, as science and many unfortunate cases of food poisoning has proven, cooking the stuffing inside of a turkey can create the perfect climate for bacteria. After cookbooks started to publish recipes for stuffing that could be cooked separately from the turkey, the question remained to stuff the turkey or not to. Luckily, with the 1970s came many culinary innovations, and one of them was stovetop stuffing in 1972. The emergence of a ready-to-make stuffing that encouraged the consumer to cook it separately from the turkey helped to eliminate the tradition, and now most households prepare stuffing separately. Another influence that helped this notion is that many newer recipes for stuffing are so elaborate themselves that no one would dare dream of putting all that stuff inside of a bird. I grew up with stovetop, and I honestly think if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
My secret for it though is to use chicken stock instead of water when you're making it. That being said, I have no qualms about making dressing, as it's called, or stuffing, as I call it, whatever your preferred name is, from the box or the bag. Typically though, Dylan, who you know from our dog podcast, makes his family's sausage stuffing every year, which I've now started to ask him to double the recipe for so that we have more leftovers. The next side we all like to see is cranberry sauce. If you're a fan of this show and you've listened to it since the beginning, first, thank you, and second, you know how I feel about cranberry sauce. The whole inspiration for this episode actually came from a deep dive I did for a previous episode about the history of cranberry sauce. Here's what I found. The history of cranberry sauce stretches all the way back to 1796, when it was originally published in the first known cookbook authored by an American, The Art of Cookery, by Amelia Simmons. Although it is said that it probably did not appear at the first Thanksgiving dinner because of the scarcity of sugar. The most basic and original recipe is actually just three ingredients, cranberries, sugar, and a small amount of water. There are many different variations of the sauce, most of which include some kind of citrus like orange and, of course, cinnamon. The dish itself hails from New England, most likely Massachusetts. Cranberries grow there en masse. It was first offered to consumers as a seasonal food in 1912 in Hanson, Massachusetts. The jellied canned version debuted in 1941, at which point that version was made available year-round. The next side I'd like to cover is one that I'm not very fond of, but I'll include it because there's never been a Thanksgiving dinner I've attended where this wasn't on the table. Green bean casserole. The way I know green bean casserole is a mishmash of canned ingredients and then turned into a hot, salty lava in the oven. In theory, though, all the ingredients that make this dish sound good if you imagine them as fresh and homemade. Ironically, the dish didn't go from a homemade comfort food to canned concoction. Darkus Riley, who worked for the Campbell Soup Company's kitchens, invented the recipe in 1955 as a way of using the basic level ingredients like frozen green beans and cream of mushroom soup to make a comforting dish for the holidays. It was printed originally on the can of cream of mushroom soup and has since become an undeniable staple of Thanksgiving around the country. Now, I've never liked this dish, mostly because of a harsh dislike of canned green beans that I had as a child. I still don't make it for my own Thanksgiving table, and in years when we've done Famsgiving with the bad friends, Aaron, from the first episode, will bring his green bean casserole. It's always gone by the end of the meal, and I'm thankful that there are people who eat it. For myself, though, a spark inside has begun to catch my curiosity of the dish. Just like I felt with cranberry sauce when I was a kid, I want to like this dish. I've tried to make it in many different iterations. Fresh green beans with a homemade mushroom cream sauce, or a cheesier version that featured sour cream instead of cream of mushroom soup. None of them really captured me. Maybe someday I'll come around to green bean casserole. I can always imagine my mother's sweet potatoes. They're always cooked in a brown casserole dish. Before the ravenous feast, they appear to me like golden orange mountains covered in a puffy snow made of mini marshmallows. Biting into one is an immediate rush of saccharine satisfaction. 
if you're like me, you do a sort of pick and mix of the different things on the plate. And I feel that sweet potatoes are always a treacly rush that goes best with stuffing and a small hit of gravy. The recipe that's known today, the one with the marshmallows, was actually published in 1917 by a marshmallow maker, Angelus Marshmallows. The company that's also the maker of Cracker Jacks wanted to make their new, easily manufactured marshmallows popular among shoppers at the supermarket. I sense a pattern emerging here. The recipe was published in an issue of Savu magazine and has been with us ever since. This isn't where the story fully began, though. Sweet potatoes aren't even members of the potato family. The regular potato is a member of the nightshade family, while sweet potatoes are a member of the morning glory family. They're a crop native to the American continents, specifically the regions of Central America, the Yucatan Peninsula, and the northern regions of South America. The sweet potato, already a familiar food to Native Americans, became popular among settlers in the future southern United States, mostly in the Carolinas and Louisiana. Dishes like fried sweet potatoes and sweet potato pie are traditional southern favorites. They're even the state vegetable of North Carolina. While the connection of Native Americans and Thanksgiving is what can be assumed as the inspiration for the sweet potato's appearance on our tables every year, what really may have propelled the dish to becoming a Thanksgiving tradition was the massive influence that British cuisine had on the U.S. during the 18th and 19th centuries. To put it simply, for a long time, the settlers of the new United States didn't really have any culinary traditions that didn't have some kind of influence from the British. England doesn't necessarily have the most historically beloved cuisine, but the prominent cooks of that time did know how to fully utilize the food items that they had around them. One of the more popular side dishes of the 19th century were sweetly spiced relishes, bakes, which would colloquially evolve into casseroles, or jellies that were served alongside main courses. Cranberry sauce may have had a similar inspiration from this as well. During a feast like Thanksgiving, it's very possible that the sweet potato was an ideal candidate for these lightly sweet side dishes. They're easily cooked and have a controllable sweetness to them. As for why we coat them in a helmet of marshmallows now, besides the marshmallow makers who wrote the recipe that touted their new product, it may have to do with the total novelty and nostalgia of it all. There's something about buying the big can with the black label and the golden-colored gem-like yams, which are not sweet potatoes, by the way. Or maybe it's the satisfaction of sneaking a few of those mini jet-puffed marshmallows just before popping the casserole dish into the turkey-scented oven. I've always talked about how I'm from the Midwest, and this dish is one of those that I always turn to for conversation when I share my thoughts on the Thanksgivings I grew up around. I firmly believe that Midwestern cuisine borrowed much of its ideas from Southern American cuisine, and we hold those culinary traditions that we've adapted just as firmly as the Southerners do. I know that my mother would never let me make my sweet potatoes, which are actual sweet potatoes, not canned yams. Not that I don't love canned yams either. To make mine, I peel and slice a few sweet potatoes and layer them in a casserole dish. I then cover it with a mixture of heavy cream, maple syrup, freshly ground black pepper, and herbs, and then bake it. Oh, and there are no marshmallows to be found in my sweet potatoes. I found this recipe for sweet potato gratin in a Turkey Day edition of Food Network magazine, and I've loved serving it on my Thanksgiving table ever since. 
Again, not that I don't love the old standard that I grew up with, but I'm definitely one to take holiday dishes back to a place of less pre-made assembling and more attention to the individual ingredients and how they can harmonize with each other. With that, we have all the basic and iconic dishes that make our Thanksgiving tables every year. After we feast, but before we need something on the sweeter side of things, let's take a little break. We'll be back in a moment. Have you ever looked at a dog and thought, what kind of dog is that? Or wondered why some dogs look so different from others? Me too. And I wish there was some way to explore these questions and cast them out into the world in some sort of pod. Oh, podcasts. Right, I have a podcast. I'm Dylan. I've been a dog walker for over three years. My boyfriend Wesley and I really want a dog of our own. But what kind of dog? We decided to make a whole podcast to discuss just that. It's called We're Getting a Dog. Each week, we discuss a different dog breed. We go deep on the breed's history and discuss what it takes to own each dog. You can find video on YouTube, audio on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and everything you need at we'regettingadog.com. This is the Arcadia Podcast Network. Welcome back. Part three, a little something sweet. It's no secret that after we plow through Thanksgiving dinner, which in my house was always served at 2 p.m. for some reason, there's always a little room left for a hot cup of coffee and a piece or two of pie. Pies are what are traditionally served at Thanksgiving, and this is again thanks to British culinary traditions. From meat to fruit, the Brits love their food encased in some kind of crust. It makes sense. Crusted pies were easier and quicker to make. Before the invention of baking powder, baking a dessert like a cake usually involved yeast, and this made them very time-consuming and very labor-intensive. So labor-intensive, in fact, that they were usually only made for weddings or other kinds of once-in-a-lifetime occasions. Pie was the respectable dessert of the masses, and that tradition came along with the settlers of New England. If there's any kind of pie that is always served this time of year, it's pumpkin pie. The origin story of pumpkins and Thanksgiving is a simple one. The first Thanksgiving table featured several different kinds of squash, pumpkin being among them. Granted, it probably wasn't in a pie form, but the connection between the food and the holiday will forever persist that way. The legendary status of the pumpkin pie comes from a woman who is credited as the godmother of Thanksgiving, Sarah Josepha Hale. She has many accomplishments besides propelling Thanksgiving to a culturally recognized holiday. When she was widowed, she found work as a magazine editor to support her family, and she also penned the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Her most significant achievement, though, was her dedicated attention to Thanksgiving throughout the mid-19th century that helped turn the holiday from a church-sponsored celebration into a nationally recognized holiday, dedicated to the bounty our land could provide by the grace of God. Her recipe of pumpkin pie is not too far from the one we still make today. The only difference is that the pumpkin didn't come pre-cooked and pureed in a can. Her recipe instructs you to stew a small pumpkin and then strain it yourself to get the puree made. And then it's the standard pumpkin pie recipe from there. Eggs, milk, ground ginger, ground cinnamon, sugar or molasses, and allspice, if you had it. 
Her recipe was published in a pamphlet released when Abraham Lincoln declared the last Thursday in November the official and permanent day to celebrate Thanksgiving. The pamphlet informed the American people of what a traditional Thanksgiving meal should look like. Advertised as the original dessert for the holiday was pumpkin pie. My grandmother Mays was the matriarch of my father's side of the family, and I've talked about her before on this show as one of my main influences in the kitchen. One of her signature desserts was sugar pie. It's more or less a custard pie that's made out of sugar, butter, flour, evaporated milk, and a dash of freshly grated nutmeg. The pie filling itself essentially just solidifies as it cooks and becomes a soft, custardy pie that reminds me of my imaginary interpretation of the southern home that my grandmother grew up in. This pie has many names. Sugar pie, sugar cream pie, shaker pie, finger pie, gross, maple cream pie, and Quaker pie. Suffice it to say that this is a recipe that has been claimed by many different food cultures. Some iterations of this dessert have maple syrup, brown sugar, or vanilla, but all of them have essentially the same consistency. A plain crust on the outside with a soft, sweet, and pleasing custard-like filling. Some versions intend for the filling to be jiggly and more pudding-like. In my grandmother's version, the filling is almost like a soft caramel. The pie also encrusts itself in the oven, adding a nice caramelized crunch to the top of it all. You can eat it either with or without whipped cream. I choose without. I'm not too fond of something so rich I can't enjoy it. If you were to look up sugar pie, you'd see many different looking pies with a million different golden brown hues. The one I make comes out a sort of sandy color, and I don't add any other flavorings besides what my grandmother used. When I read through all of the stories about this pie, I felt like I'd found two different origin stories for the same pie. Many sources say the pie originated in Belgium and France, which makes some kind of sense considering that many of the desserts served in those regions mimic this pie in general. After all, it is a custard-filled pastry shell. However, when I looked more into the history of the pie in the United States, I was surprised to find that it existed and evolved in very different communities. The tale I had always known of this pie was from my grandmother, who speculated that her recipe was derived from a version made by the Pennsylvania Dutch. However, there is a more similar pie that is made in Indiana, which is pretty close to her home state of Kentucky and next door to Illinois, where she started her family. In Indiana, you can find it called either sugar pie or shaker pie. That name comes from a small sect of Quakers, known as the Shakers, who moved to Indiana in the mid-19th century only to abandon their community shortly after. It's still a very popular regional pie, especially in the area of Winchester, Indiana, where sugar pies are made locally and sold by Wicks Pies. The other reason that I think my grandmother's version comes from the Quakers of Indiana is because of the light dusting of nutmeg that is served on top of the pie. It's the only iteration where the nutmeg flavor is prominently featured, and it's been that way since the 19th century, according to Wix Pies. Wix Pie Shop still operates in Winchester, and you better believe that when it's safe to travel again, I want to go and try a piece of their sugar pie. To me, finding the history of this dessert helps me to honor my beloved grandmother and the very special recipe that she left for me and my family. I'd like to end it there, for this year at least. There are so many more dishes and traditions that we all have around the holidays, and I hope that in future years I can do more episodes like this for you. 
In the spirit of the season, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this first special episode of Good Food for Bad Friends. No matter what your culinary traditions are or how they may change this year, I truly hope that those of you listening have a happy Thanksgiving and a wonderful start to your holiday season. I hope you join me next week for another episode of Good Food for Bad Friends from the Arcadia Podcast Network.